Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This dramatic video shows Willa's youngest son, Stephen, at the scene of the fire, watching his father's house go up in flames. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part two of the story of Stephen Lawrence, convicted for the murder of his father in 1992. It's a crime Steve has always maintained he's innocent of. This call is from a correctional facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Three-way calls are strictly prohibited in the violation of MDOC policy. Thank you for using GTL. How you doing, Jack? I'm very well, thank you, sir. Yourself? Stephen is incarcerated in Michigan in the United States and, like many who I speak with, has a job within the prison. Steve is in charge of the facility's horticultural garden program. With most inmates who have jobs within the prison facility, they work a few hours a day. Whereas with Steve, Steve's work schedule is from 8am till 9pm, seven days a week. He's in charge of 72 prisoners who care for the vegetables and garden plots within the facility. They grow over 80 varieties of vegetables that each inmate is able to grow themselves as well as eat. Part of Steve's job is to teach others horticultural growing practices as well as the more important job of keeping an eye on the garden tools like metal shovels, rakes, shears, trowels and so on. The tool shed cannot be opened without Steve present to mark them off as they leave. Of course, if these tools were to get into the wrong hands, it could spell disaster within a prison. At the time of the year that Steve and I began our conversations, the area of Michigan was about to get hit by a very cold winter snap, which means all the gardens needed to be turned over for the winter as the garden program was ready to shut down. Not too bad. Been working like crazy and tired. You mentioned uh, you've got quite the job in there with the uh, all the produce that you uh, grow, which is impressive. Yes, and like I think I told you, we're closing down. Uh, the program shuts down on the thirty-first. So we've, this is the, one of the busiest times. Opening and closing are, is super busy. Yeah. 
anyone who can grow anything is impressive to me because uh, I fail at growing uh, the simplest of things. Everyone says to me, oh, careful growing basil because it just goes like a weed uh, and my basil just Ooh. dies. So <laughs> it's just, I can't grow anything to save my life. So uh, I, uh, it always impresses me, especially on the scale that you're doing, that's for sure. Yes, it's. Uh, I love doing it. I love teaching guys how to... Uh grow and and uh, it, it's really it's fun it's rewarding i also enjoy it i'll probably still be eating tomatoes on thanksgiving here yeah well uh maybe uh, over the course of our uh, discussions we can uh, you can exchange some tips for me for how to grow some stuff absolutely steve says that they grow so much produce that a large portion of it is actually donated to a local mission which feeds the less fortunate in the community steve gave me just a small list of the amount of food that they donated this season which included 142 cabbages, 210 cucumbers, 435 bell peppers, 1,700 tomatoes and 2,000 onions, just to name a few. I first heard about the Steve Lawrence case many months ago after an interview I conducted with Imran Syed from the Michigan Innocence Clinic. Hey, can you hear me? I've got you. How are you, sir? I'm great. I put on my big headset again because yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope the audio is better. Yeah, fancy headset. <laughs> I love it. The most prepared man in uh, podcast interviewing. It's great. <laughs> Those may remember Imran as part of the team that has been trying to help Temujin Kenzu, as well as many others, get free from the Michigan DOC. After we wrapped up our discussion, he would tell me about this other case that might interest me. How did he, this story first come to your attention? So I became aware of uh, Stephen Lawrence's case uh, actually as part of uh, my work in a prior case that you highlighted before. My very first exoneration as a, as a student and as an attorney was um, a case of a man named David Gavitt, uh, who you had highlighted previously, and that was an arson case where David was wrongfully convicted of setting his own house on fire where his two daughters and his wife uh, died in the fire and he was wrongfully convicted. Um, while working on that case, I became, uh, you know, more and more kind of entrenched in this general narrative of uh, junk science that pervaded uh, fire investigation. Uh, you know, as I was learning more and more about um, this world of, uh, you know, junk fire science that had pervaded uh, arson cases and, and led to many wrongful convictions, uh, I started to search out to see if there were other such cases, and Stevens was one I discovered. Around that time, I also discovered a couple of other cases that have resulted in exonerations. Stevens has been a little bit uh, more of a challenge because this is one of those cases where someone did set the fire, most likely. You know, the easiest of the cases are are ones where it wasn't arson, and someone wrongfully declared it to be arson. The Gavitt case, in hindsight, is the easier one because there was actually no evidence. It was an intentionally set fire mm. and a lot of evidence that it was uh, an accident. Um, uh, in Stephen's case, we see a lot of the same factors that lead to wrongful convictions in junk fire science cases, and that's why probably around 2012, when I first read his the court opinion in his case, I immediately flagged it because I saw it as a potential junk fire science conviction because the terminology being used is definitely very suspect. Um, but Stevens is a, is a step beyond because um, there's actually a lot more going on than just the junk fire science, although I do think that's an important component. In our last episode, we got to know a bit about Steve, his life growing up and his family, especially that of his relationship between him and his father. 
Steve spoke about moving with his wife and two kids to the Gun Lake area right next door to his father's home. Over a few months in the community of Gun Lake, a number of suspicious house fires would begin to be lit around the community, which of course had residents on edge. This audio is taken from a new special that was done on Steve and his case. The residents of this pricey enclave live in constant fear. For several years, a rash of suspiciously set fires has remained unsolved. You don't know what to do. The thing now that, that bothers most of us is a feeling of frustration. I don't feel real safe, but I don't know. I guess it could happen anywhere. Now, there were a series of house fires that started happening in around the, the lakefront community. Yes. Do you know much about those those fires? Uh, not outside of just living there um, and knew that they took place. And I knew who <clears throat> that they said they had, uh, they had the top suspect. Yeah, other than just living there and going through it and being kind of nervous about it and going to meetings, trying to figure out, you know, maybe who was behind it, who we thought was behind it. So, and if you look at the police reports, it was always one name, all always at the top. Yeah. And that was a real close friend of my brother Don's. Interesting oh, really? Enough. Yes. What What was his name? Greg Wood. So he was a friend yeah. of your your brother Don's, and and he was a, why was he a suspect? Um, I bet I can't tell you why. He lived out there, and and I, all I know is you know we got shown police reports, and there was five fires out there prior to that. Yep. And uh, Greg Wood, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, and he was the suspect in all five of them. And it doesn't say why, it just says that he's the suspect? Yes, that's all it says on there, and, and it's uh, on their report. I have no idea, but you know, when we had meetings, like I said, uh, they had all the different residents out there come to meetings in the state police, and they all told us to be watching out for him out there if we would see him or see him back around out there so uh the first two i'm looking at here were in 89 8 of 99 and i think um, if i can read it correctly 11 of 89 they were both at uh the jack wood wood's house so and that's where greg was living both and they were since molotov cocktails and that's and then the next one was right next door to him uh, I mean, right next door, and it says, uh, I think it says Molotov there, too. It's hard to read. So they were obviously, there were suspicious fires from, from the get-go. Right. Absolutely. So do we know if he was ever questioned by police? I'm assuming if he was a suspect, then he would have been. Well, I know that's something that I thought. If he didn't get to question or anything like that for months, and I mean months, and I've always, something that I've always said, that was their number one suspect. While the fire was burning, they should have been looking for him. That's just my opinion. If you've got a suspect, you know, where's he at? Let's go find him now. Yeah, absolutely. And they didn't even look for him for months. The police did have a suspect early on with the other fires that had happened within that area. Stephen mentions that this guy was known to his brother. I did say to Stephen, you know, do you know if this guy was ever questioned about the fires? Uh, and he said, I, I think he was questioned maybe months afterwards uh, he was spoken mm. to. But again, if you've got someone who you believe is a suspect, okay, the night of a fire where a, you know, a man is now killed in one of these fires, 
surely as the police involved, you'd be going, okay, who's our number one? This guy's our number one suspect. Where is he? Let's bring him in. We need to speak to him. So uh, I do remember some kind of summary uh, references to that suspect. Um, And, you know, I think the reason that Engel wasn't pursued further uh, is, is... some of what we talked about earlier because the police felt like they knew what happened here. They knew it was the disgruntled black sheep of the family next door who did this. They get their blinkers Um, on and then that's it. Exactly, exactly. The the cognitive uh, bias, the the tunnel vision, whatever we're calling it. And you know, you see this a lot uh, in police investigations where um, police officers are just so used to not being questioned and so used to thinking about themselves as uh, the expert in investigation to the point where you know, they start to believe that their instincts have some value and, or, or their instincts are somehow above those of other people. And, and, you know, that's really dangerous territory because that's where you start to not only choose what leads to pursue, but, you know, what evidence to disclose, what evidence to build up, what evidence to ignore based on your gut feelings. And that's really dangerous. And I think that's what happened here. Now, I have no idea if that other person committed this fire or not. But I think that needed to be looked into further. And, and I think a lot of that might have been hindered by the fact that initially you've got this private investigation firm that, you know, probably has even fewer qualms about breaking the rules than an average, you know, official police officer would. Um, and, you know, there's I'm, I'm hesitating to say more because there's a lot of stuff that's said about that investigation and other aspects of the case. That's just rumor. And I yeah, don't want to get into that. Yeah. Um, but but I think one thing I can certainly say is this fire did not happen in the way that the prosecution uh, argued it did. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Not long after the death of Steve's father, 
his brother Don would go out and hire a private investigator to look into this fire. So did they ever come in to speak to you about the fires yeah. at all? Yeah, um, after, I don't know, the time went by, whether it was a week or so, but yes, they came and interviewed me, and uh, like I say, at that point in time, you know, my brother went and hired this private investigator who was a dirty cop and been fired from every place he had ever been working, and uh, he had been pointing the finger at me, pointing the finger at me, and so like that, this so when they came into our home, you know, I thought they were looking to try to find out, you know, get some ideas what we thought and who might be involved, stuff like that. But they were actually there just to fry me. They never read me Miranda rights or anything. They just, you know, I was their top suspect at that time because of Jerry Mattioli. We will, of course, talk more about this private investigator as, well, the entire case was built on the so-called evidence that he would discover. But let's take a look at what happened the night of this fire, the fire that would take the life of Willard Lawrence. It was the 20th of February 1992, and Willard was at the time at his home in Florida, where he spent most of the winter months. However, he was on his way back to Michigan due to some knee surgery that he had scheduled. Willard would be flying in on his personal plane, which Steve says would land right by where he worked. And any time his father would fly into town, it would be Steve who would of course pick him up, seeing as he was so close, and take him home. However, he says that on this particular occasion, that routine would be changed. What do you remember from that day? Of course, I was at work. And the one thing I did know is my father was coming back because he had to have knee surgery, and he was having knee surgery in Lansing, Michigan. Um, And so he was coming back. And something that was weird, and it bothers me to this day, is my employment at Cisco, basically um, I could almost look out and see uh, uh, the runway for private jets, and so it was right at the airport. And any time he ever came back from Florida before, because I was right there, I would just I'd pick him up, and I mean every time. But this time, my brother, Don, absolutely insisted he had to do it, and which made no sense, but he did. So at any rate, um, after we got out at work, we had a, a, a business uh, after hours, stuff like that, at TJ Friday's, where we just had a couple of uh, cocktails and uh, some hors d'oeuvres. And I was going to head, and I headed home. And while that was happening, the the boys and Candy went and, and got the house already warm, and and they turned the lights on, so you know everything was all set. And then the strangest thing, and this was testified in trial, which I I can never get over, is because I told you my brother Don said I got to pick him up, I got to pick him up. They stopped my brother Don. And his live-in girlfriend stopped at uh, my dad's house. He went into my dad's office. <clears throat> they saw the lights there. He went to down by the lakeside, and he flashed on uh, spotlights that went out over the ice around the lake a couple times. He turned off all the lights in the house that my wife turned on and then got in my dad's car and took that out, and then the two of them 
drove away. They dropped my dad's car off at a restaurant in Middleville, and then they went to the airport to pick him up. So talk me through the rest of that, that evening then from you. So you, you obviously leave TGI Fridays or wherever you were, and you head home. Yes, and uh, like I say, once I got home, it was just a, a normal night. Of course, my dad wasn't home yet and stuff like that, and it was just a normal evening at home. And then, you know, of course, we went to bed and so on, and then I... I think, you know, to this day, I don't know the exact time, but somewhere around 2 o'clock, we woke up to a, a huge noise. And, you know, not knowing it was, and what I do remember is it was so loud that I was flying through the air, because I, I probably leaped or jumped because it scared the crap out of me. And when I got on, when I was down on the floor, I, I hollered to Candy to get on the floor, didn't know what it was. And I, I grabbed a, a gun and went to look out to the window, and that's when I saw that Dad's house was on fire. First thing I did is, is call the fire department, and we had, because there had been fires out there before, we had that on speed dial. So I did that, and immediately after I did that, I hit speed dial and to my brother Don which was he lived in Hastings and I mean he picked up immediately this is you know around two in the morning he's just boom first ring it on and I said dad's house is on fire like that and that was basically all I said and uh, and went and headed out you know to try to save him. Okay so we will be talking more about Don coming up very soon But this particular moment would come into question later on. As Steve says, it was around 2am or just after in the morning when he calls his brother, who would pick up the phone almost instantly, as if he was sitting by it. Steve's dad's house was well and truly alight, and he runs outside and across to the neighbours. Our neighbors had a pump, and uh, we notified the neighbors really quick, and then went and got a ladder and put it up on an overhang that was on the back of my dad's house. And I thought it was Kay Simpson, but I guess everything that I've read, I guess uh, that it was Paul Hopkins that went up on uh, on the roof and then broke the window, and which I don't remember, but I do remember the window they broke was, we figured it was, it was there was an overhang over there, and it was the blue room, which was right next door, and we figured that would be the best one to go through, because to bring him out, so like that, he could step out easy, but when they broke that window, a lot of smoke started coming out like crazy. Steve is by the side of the lake, trying to help get a pump started in order to feed a neighbour's hose with water to fight the fire. He's holding the hose in the water while a neighbour frantically tries to get the pump started. I remember I went out onto the ice because they, they broke a hole in the ice, stuff like that, and they were having problems getting the pump started and I was holding onto the hose, praying to God for it to start to get the water going. The neighbours begin attempting to fight the fire at Steve's dad's home as the fire trucks pull in. And how long before the emergency services turn up? 
I think I didn't ever see him pull up, but roughly 15 minutes, which there's a big discrepancy in there, which goes on to what my brother said too, Brother Don, what he testified to. They made it sound like in, in, during my trial that I waited for a long time to call the fire department, but in Candy's trial, they absolutely proved that I called them immediately, and Don followed the first fire trucks in and everything. So uh. it was everything that I've said was the truth and the facts. That's how it is. As mentioned, Steve's wife Candy would also eventually be charged in relation to this crime. So throughout her discussion, Steve will refer to things in his trial and in hers. And it would seem that many things that got Steve convicted would in fact be disproved or discredited in his wife's trial. What happens after they, they get the fire sort of under control or out? By that time, it was the next morning. Uh, and yes, you know, we were there and stayed there and I don't remember, I don't think the police really talked to me much uh, then. Uh, it was days later or maybe a day later or something like that. I think that's my recollection, and I could be wrong with this. The first person that came out and talked to me was a fire investigator, if I remember correctly, for yep. insurance. But that's been a long time ago, too. I could be, you know, yeah, no, for my sure. timeline could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, I understand that. I can't remember what happened yesterday, let alone... 20-odd years ago. When is the first time that you you start thinking that they're looking at you for this fire? Oh, uh, that was actually quite a while because uh, I'd never dreamed that they would be looking at me. Um, and I can say, uh, boy, I, I, maybe I can put a date on it here if I could find some things. But like I said, the only reason they did it was after... My brother Don hired Jerry Mattioli, and uh, I think I wrote to you, and and I was, I read and found out his whole thing was he, when he hired Mattioli not to investigate the fire but to build a case on me, and that's exactly what he did, exactly what he did. This is definitely a very odd part of this particular case. Of course, usually in these situations where there's been a fire or an incident where someone has passed away, the police are called and the detectives come in, establish a crime scene and begin their investigation. And of course, the family lets the police do their job. In this particular situation, Steve's brother Don immediately goes out and hires a private investigator by the name of Jerry Mattioli who it would appear turns his attention straight to Steve. Here's Imran from the Michigan Innocence Clinic. You know, we have a an investigation that from the beginning uh, regards Lawrence as suspicious. And so I think uh, it's an investigation that's looking at the whole case, you know, trying to prove that Lawrence did it. Uh, and Lawrence here being Stephen Lawrence, of course. Yep. Uh, instead of a more open-ended what happened, first mm. of all, because as we know from other fire cases, the first question is, is this arson at all? And here I think the answer would be yes. But then the second question is, who did it? And it shouldn't be, we know Stephen Lawrence did it, let's go find evidence that he did it. Yeah. Because if you if you focus on an individual person like that, we see this in many cases. You know, if, if you build your whole narrative about what is there about this person that makes them suspicious, you'll find something. Of course. Right? But are you 
in that sense, conducting a fair investigation, are you getting the likeliest suspect or are you getting your preferred suspect? And I would argue it's the latter. So here, as Stephen says, his brother was instrumental. His brother Donald was instrumental in recruiting a private investigation firm that kind of took the lead in a lot of the interviews and investigations. A lot of the of the stuff that regards Stephen's behavior as suspicious comes from investigations done by that private investigation firm. Um, so we have some some uh, some questions about the motives there. You know, there's a lot of small town dynamics involved here. I mean, this is probably the only case I've come across where uh, a private investigation firm was so affirmatively and upfront involved in the investigation. Usually it's police. And if a PI firm is involved, it's years later when they're trying to reinvestigate the case. And that's what I said to um, Stephen. I said, because he talks very much about this Mattioli guy who was the lead investigator from that private investigation company. Um, as the one kind of leading the investigation, I'm like, well, what about the police? I mean, what, what were they doing? Were they investigating this crime? And he's like, oh, no, well, most, yeah. all, pretty much their entire case came from the private investigation company. Which again, right. uh, as you said, it's very odd. I mean, you know, it is, yeah, very odd. And so, uh, and so, that's part of what I mean by you know maybe this was. I, I don't really see how this is acceptable. I've had plenty of cases from small towns, and I haven't come across this before. Yeah, um, this could have been a situation where the police saw it as such a huge incident that it's way above their head, because um, yeah, it is a, it's a, it's a death of uh, of of an individual it's a, it's a homicide and that's rare in this community and it's a fairly prominent member of this community and i think maybe the police would have felt in over their heads and welcomed uh, private investigative assistance i don't really know how that happened right and yeah. that's one of the things we want to work to resolve but what we do know is that the fruits of that investigation from the beginning the investigation is only bringing forward things that make lawrence look bad stephen lawrence mm. um and so, you know, so much of this trial turns into his supposedly odd behavior after the fire. This private investigator, Jerry Mattioli, yep. yeah, they say that he was he was hired to investigate um, your father's death and to rule out all of the kids. Um, do you think he ever looked into anyone else but you? No. And, and, Jack, I can't tell you where we found it, but I was going through uh, documents where it, it said no, and I just went down and looked, too, is my brother Don, of course, the fire was on the 20th of February, 1992. On the 23rd, my brother Don hired Matrix, or Mattioli, and like I said, I think I told you, he had been fired from every place he had been, from the state police, DEA, every place he went for planning evidence. So Steve does make a number of claims about Mr Mattioli and his past, including an alleged incident that took place during his employment for the city of Big Rapids in Michigan as the Director of Public Safety. These are Incidents that I'm still waiting to confirm, so at this stage, for legal reasons, I won't be airing them. However, what I can say is that during Steve's eventual trial, a gentleman by the name of Frank West, a Big Rapids police sergeant, would testify that he had had a number of run-ins with Jerry Mattioli and that threats and intimidation were part of his management style. With another officer, Jeff Kuhn, stating, and I quote, "'I don't believe he was honest.' he would say whatever he had to say to accomplish his goals. A reporter also would come forward and testify at trial about his dealings with this PI, Jerry Mattioli. 
David Barber, who worked for the Big Rapids Pioneer, testified that Mr Mattioli threatened his life while he was gathering information about Mattioli and the police department for articles. It is alleged that Mr Mattioli produced a firearm on a table while having a conversation with this reporter, allegedly stating that if he ever wrote about his family, he would take him out. You know, he was the whole thing, but it's been too long when I went through these notes and these documents and it said that what uh, Mattioli's directive was is not to really investigate, but to come at me. And it's very obvious because when I was just a couple of minutes ago looking, when after the 23rd, by the 24th and 25th, he was already uh, taping me. Matter of fact, when we went to our my wife and kids went to Don's house. They taped everything. Everything was directed totally at me by then. So I'm curious as to why your brother hires a private investigator so soon after this incident. I mean, surely the police are investigating this. Why do, why do we need a private investigator? This Usually private investigators come in if the police turn around and say, you know, we haven't found anything or we're struggling to find anything or, you know, and then they go, <coughs> okay, well, we're going to hire someone else here to, to do this. I wonder why your brother hired someone so quickly. Well, there's a million-dollar question I wish I had. You have one minute remaining. The next time I can make a call is, is Wednesday, and then I think the following Monday. Okay. Yep. No, that works for me, mate. So Absolutely. I, I will email you to, to verify that, but I know I can And that's all we have time for. But coming up in our next episode, we'll take a look at Steve's apparent odd behaviour on the night of this crime, as well as the days afterwards. These actions that night would raise suspicions with investigators and drive a wedge through his family. When the firefighters arrive... And the investigation from Jerry Mattioli continues until Steve is eventually arrested, along with his wife Candy, for killing his father. So the private investigator took you to an attorney. Was he saying to you that, you know, the cops are looking at you for this, you need an attorney? Yeah, he kept telling me that uh, he knew I was guilty and he said, the police know you're guilty and you need an attorney. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.